don't have your Bible already open, please open it to Daniel chapter 1. Since the scripture and the text has been read to you already, I'm not going to uh, read it again. Uh, I do want to give us some context for us to think about. Uh, My desire this morning is to walk through verses 8 through 21 and for us to see, hopefully, some important matters from the truth of God's word. We see here in the life of Daniel that he has been exiled along with his friends. He's gone through or going through a period of training, which is about three years long, and he is in the midst of that training, beginning in verse 8, and it says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. We see here Daniel is brought to a place in his life in the midst of this training where he is in a complete different land, complete different country, complete different culture, and a complete different context. And everything around him has changed, and it seems as though in his mind he's at this place where he has to make a decision. He's been forced into this place which is so new and in many ways problematic, struggling, and even concerning. When I read Daniel, I'm often reminded of this uh, great western city in America called Dodge City. Some of you may have some idea about Dodge City. Dodge City was not exactly like Babylon, but it was a lot like Babylon. Dodge City was so wicked in the 1870s that there's a story told of a wagon train that pulled just east of Dodge City. The migrants were exhausted and a few were injured. And the canvas atop all the wagons looked like porcupine uh, stickers were coming out of them because they had been under Indian attack. As they pulled close to Dodge City, just east of it, they climbed out of the wagons. They got on their knees, and these people circled around their minister, and he prayed. O Lord, we pray thee, protect us with thy mighty hand. On our long journey, thy providence has thus kept us safe so far. We have survived cloudbursts, hailstorms, floods. We have even survived the parching heat and thirst, as well as horse thieves and raids by hostiles. But now, O Lord, we face our gravest danger. Dodge City lies ahead, and we must pass through. Help us. Save us. We beseech thee. So here's a group of believers in the 1870s going to enter a completely different realm in the city of Dodge. They knew of its wickedness long before they ever got there. And they were on their hands and knees pleading, God, keep us safe as we enter this town. Now in some sense, it doesn't say a lot for the town, does it? But you can imagine this may have been a little bit of the mentality that Daniel and his friends had. 
in entering Babylon. Everything had been changed. When we consider Daniel's circumstances and how he's about to handle his life, firstly, this morning we have to recognize character is not grown in perfect circumstances. Character is not grown in perfect circumstances. Stuart Alliot put it this way. He says, character does not require ideal conditions in which to develop. It even reminds us of Jeremiah 29.7 when God tells his people to seek the peace of the city whether or, not he's caught, whether or not he's caused them to be carried away, captive. He says, still pray unto Jehovah. Pray unto Jehovah for peace. For in the peace thereof you shall have peace. He's saying to them that these things that need to, be, need to be developed in us as believers are not those things which can only grow in the right circumstances or the perfect circumstances. One doesn't have to be in Zion, so to speak, to have character grow within them. Often people are looking for the perfect circumstance in which to say, well, now this can happen. And for us as believers, we're never in the perfect place to be able to say, well, now I can grow my character. Now I can dig my wells deep in God's word. Now I can do this because all the right circumstances have come together. With Daniel, we'll see this morning that he had character that had been developed already and was developing in the midst of one of the most tumultuous times of his life. It's kind of like the old adage, when all is wrong in the world, there remains a right thing to do. When all is wrong in the world, there remains a right thing to do. Number two, principled convictions are rarely found in the young. If you read this and you read Daniel's life here, it's amazing. A young man and his friends would have these many principled convictions and this much thoughtfulness and they probably were somewhere around the age of 16. Encourage our young people to think and understand. You're developing your principles and your convictions now so that you will be able to stand in the future day of your life. Those principal convictions have everything to do with who God is and what he has done and who you know him to be and see him to be and recognize him to be through and in his word. You are not going to find a world that will encourage you to have principled convictions about who God is. Sadly, the modern mind, according to one pastor, permits every young person the opportunity for complete mindlessness. This is the world we live in. It's accepting of complete mindlessness. Oh, that's okay. They'll figure it out one day. Is that really the way it has to be? That the person, every individual has to go through the most tumultuous times, has to be the the rowdiest person of Dodge City 
to be able to come out on the other end and go, well, maybe I was wrong. The life of Daniel shows us that's not true. It says something to us, first of all, about Daniel's upbringing. Because note this. Here's a young man, probably around the age of 16, who is in a three-year indoctrination period in Babylon. And amidst everything going on, everything that's happening, he still has convictions and principles based on who God is. How did he develop that? In his upbringing. He heeded the word of God. Honor your father and your mother. He listened to the truth of God that was given to the people of Israel. Even when Israel around him as a nation was failing, this young man and his friends apparently were listening carefully to who God is. But we need to note these principal convictions not only are based in their upbringing, but these principled convictions, rarely found in the young, these are based in the very work of God's grace in Daniel's soul and the souls of his friends. We need to pray, adults, for our young people. We need to pray that God would deal with their souls. We need to pray for them consistently and thoughtfully. I doubt very seriously that there was no one praying for Daniel and his friends. I bet there was some family that prayed for them. They had been ripped away from all of their family and taken off in exile to a foreign land, a place they did not know and a culture they did not understand. And they were going to have to withstand all that that culture would put upon them. Sometimes, young people, you're so eager, so eager to just get out in the world. One day you'll be like many of us looking back, wishing we hadn't been so eager. Wishing we had listened more. Wishing we had dug our wells deep in God's word more. In verse 8, when it says, but Daniel made up his mind, this is not something that we can walk away from lightly. We have to recognize there's something that happened here. Daniel's mind was made up, a principled conviction, a young man, a young person standing on these principles and convictions. You're not going to get this from the world, young people. They're not going to encourage you to turn to God's word. They're just not going to do it. The culture in the world is not going to say to you, here's what's good for you in God's word. The culture is going to turn you to yourself. Because all they know is self-centeredness. It says Daniel made up his mind. This is based on something that God had done in him. 
God was the one developing these principles and these convictions, not the world. One pastor noted, the licensing of teenage irresponsibility has produced more fatalities than warfare. I thought, yeah, that's probably true. There's been millions upon millions of people killed in warfare. But there's probably countless millions that have been killed or injured due to the licensing of teenage irresponsibility. You can really tell the downfall of a culture when a culture is no longer willing to keep its young people in check and to put boundaries on its young people. That's the downfall of a, cult a culture. It's coming. It's here, and God will judge it. Spurgeon said, oh, that we had young men who had the old grit and knew how to put their feet down. He would never have been a man greatly beloved, speaking of Daniel, had he not been a youth greatly decided. You know, we've got it the other way around. We teach young people to put a little spit on that finger and hold it up in the air and see which way the wind's blowing and say, oh, that's the way the culture's going, so I can, I'll join in with them. God had so worked in Daniel's life that he didn't put his finger in the air to find out which way the culture was going. He put his nose to the ground and said, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to seek the truth of God. Thirdly this morning, choosing the hill to die on is a question for every generation. Choosing the hill to die on is the question for every generation. When we come to these verses here, we have to note, Daniel did not qualm about the new language, the new curriculum, or the new name, but at the new diet. Now think about that. Everything had been changed. Everything. He had to learn a new language. He had to learn new curriculum, new understanding of, of you know, not just culture, but everything in all of life. They'd even given him a new name. But now all of a sudden, he puts his foot down at a new diet. Now I want to note something here because the text talks about this and it brings it up. It talks about Daniel wanting to, to be fed vegetables. And I think uh, Dale Ralph Davis does us a good service here in one of his footnotes. He says, vegetables is a bit misleading if your text uses that word. He says, the two related words refer to produce grown from seed that is sown. And so includes not only vegetables, but fruits and grains, and presumably bread made from grain. As one writer noted, this is kind of a hodgepodge of a, a kind of a, uh, an oatmeal. One writer called it pulse. Uh, it made me think, you know on your, uh, your mixer, there's that button you can push that's for pulse. You put a bunch of stuff in there and you go, meow, meow, meow. And 
it's chopping that stuff up. And after you do that a few times, you look at it and you go, Ooh, that doesn't look real appetizing. This stuff doesn't sound real appetizing. But in Daniel's mind, it had everything that he needed. And he wanted to put it in proper place. Now, some people have taken this to a place to say, well, this is about the diet and the context of the Old Testament Israelite life and law. I want us to be careful here. I want us to ask the question, why is it has Daniel requested this particular diet? He didn't ask to change anything else. He didn't put his foot down on anything else. Now think about that for a moment. I mean, if you're going to have to learn all this other stuff from their curriculum, their language, what they want to teach you, yet he didn't put his foot down about that. He put his foot down about the diet. Well, what was the issue? Was it about legal food regarding obedience to God? Something being unclean? One writer noted that pork was highly prized among the Babylonians and the Persians. Horse was also eaten freely. I don't know if you thought about that. I'm not a big horse eater myself. But certain cultures prize certain things. Well, if this was the issue, then why decline the wine? It was not unclean. He didn't decline just the food. He declined the food and the wine. Was it about nutritional food regarding a good and proper diet? Was Daniel a vegetarian? Well, if this was the issue then why wasn't vegetarianism prescribed in all circumstances? Was it about circumstantial food regarding the sacrifices? These animals would have been used in sacrifices. And so therefore he's refusing, like maybe the Corinthian believers in the New Testament, not to have these animals given to sacrifices. Well, were this the case, lots of times it's been found in these cultures that they even burned in sacrificial sense vegetables and fruits as well. As one writer notes, it's more likely none of the above individually. It's more likely a thought of something in totality. One commentator says, by Eastern standards, to share a meal was to commit oneself to friendship. It was of covenant significance. This was not just any meal he was sharing. This was the very food of the king. And to accept the food of the king was to say, I'm sitting at your table in covenant friendship. 
Another writer says, hence he had to draw the line at some point to preserve some distinctiveness to keep from being totally squeezed into Babylon's mold. He had accepted a lot of things, but this was a place taking the king's food in totality and saying, I'm going to sit down with you and eat, king, and I'm in agreement with you and all of your world. He was saying no. I'll learn your language. I'll learn different aspects of your culture. I will learn your curriculum. I'll allow you to change my name. But I am not changing my covenant friendship. My covenant friendship is with God and God alone. Spurgeon said, had he eaten, he would have melted into a Chaldean. Another writer says, there was danger in the lion's den, but there was danger in that dining hall too. Those lions could eat you up, but they'd do it from the outside. Sometimes our covenant friendship is what eats us up from the inside out. One pastor noted, the world may come at us in large or small doses. Most dangerous are the accumulation of the small ones. This goes back to our thought in Bible study. The toleration of the lesser sins over a period of time, it puts us in a place of failure in the greater sins. And we just sit back and let the lesser sins just go and act as if they're no big deal. And we tolerate them. We're opening ourselves up to those greater sins. The man who takes the glance at a woman who's not his wife, and he does so repeatedly, time and time again, and never seeks to repent of it and deal with it. Opens himself up to greater sins down the road. Things like that. Ferguson says some Christians are heroes in their daydreams only. The characteristic march, mark of such heroism is imagining ourselves in rarefied atmospheres. In stark contrast, true heroism is first exercised in small things and in private. If we fail there, any faithfulness we show in public will be hypocrisy. When I read that, that's sinking. I can have a lot of outward conviction in the large things. But if I'm not seeking to strive against, deal with, and repent of the small things in private, all my outward stuff is hypocrisy. You have to think about what Daniel's doing here. We will see Daniel as a man who is full of God's grace granted to him in a way that 
he does that in private which is necessary to be his foundation to handle that which he needs to in public, not vice versa. That's important. Fourthly this morning, God may direct the heart or mind of any individual. God may direct the heart or mind of any individual. We see in verse 8 how Daniel is put in mind not to defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine. He sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. What's interesting, though, is verse 9. And it's really the important context of all of this section, and it sets up the whole of Daniel's life. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God granted it. Now, Daniel first goes to this commander of the officials, and he asks that he not have to eat this food or take this drink. But that commander of the officials, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't lop Daniel's head off, which is interesting enough. Think about it for a minute. Here's this young guy. It's not like this is mano and mano, two 50-year-olds having a conversation with each other. Here's this young guy and this commander of the officials. He's probably not 16. And this young guy's coming up saying, I don't want to do this. Uh, I'm asking you that I not have to do it. Now, I could think of a lot of responses that could have come from this man. And what we see here is a man who doesn't lop his head off, but he appeals to him and says, no, I'm not sure about this. Even if we want to test it out, I'm not sure about this. Because you know what? If something happens to you guys and I present you to the king and he doesn't like it, then it's my head on the chopping block. So instead of lopping his head off, the commander reasons with him, says no, but Daniel comes to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel. Here's another man. He's a secondary man. Daniel comes to him and makes this plea. And in making this plea, it's agreed upon. God may direct the heart or mind of any individual. Who gave Daniel favor? In the eyes of these men, God did it. Now I want you to think about something. For Daniel to go to both of these men, I guarantee you, there was something in Daniel's mind for a moment that probably thought, this could be bad. But he also thought, I'm willing to go. God's covenant faithfulness is more important to me than anything else. I'm willing to go. This is not about moralism. This is about recognizing who do we trust. Do we trust really in the sovereignty of God? Daniel's saying, I don't want to completely give in to Babylon. I don't want to just just meld into being or, or, or melt into being a Chaldean. 
I'm willing to take this small stand here and just, just say, fine, change my name, change my curriculum, change my culture, change my, my location. But I'm not going to sit and just eat a meal and act like everything's okay. And what Daniel finds is that God is faithful. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. First of all, he wasn't killed. And secondly, when he went to the secondary commander, his plea was taken up. He said, fine, I'll give you these ten days. I'll give you this opportunity, and we'll see what happens. Calvin says, let us perceive that God forms everyone's disposition every day and every moment. We must consider the minds and hearts of men to be so governed by God that he changes their affections just as he pleases. Now we're going to see two sides of this coin, but the first side of this coin is the sovereignty of God. God is the one who turned the minds and the affections of this, these men that they would have favor and compassion toward Daniel in a request that might get them hung. I don't know if Babylon hung people or not, but you get what I'm saying. I haven't researched all their death ways, but you get it. This is the first side of the coin of the sovereignty of God. We can't forget it. We can talk all we want to about the responsibility of man. We can talk all we want to about the activity of man. We can talk all we want to about what man needs to do. But the first side of the coin is always the sovereignty of God. And God is sovereign in all things. Even the hearts and affections of individuals. It's just the fact. And scripture outlines it and puts it out before us time and time and time and time again. Just go look at Pontius Pilate. When we read this, it ought to be shocking in one way, as we do not think of God's sovereign grace as working in this daily manner. Um, some years ago, this has been a long time ago, um, I got a ticket for running a stop sign. Now, I know that's shocking. I know that is shocking, and, you know, I understand, but I'm not perfect. Well, this is so long ago that after receiving this ticket, this is 20 years ago or so, I had forgotten that I'd gotten a ticket. And I get a call from this court. And I'm in Pennsylvania. Mr. Smith, do you know that your ticket is due today? Uh, uh, you've got to be here by 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock to pay this ticket. I can't. I'm in Pennsylvania. Well, sir, I'm sorry, but something's got to happen. I guess they were going to issue a warrant or something. I was like, Ooh. I mean, I am just freaking out. 
Joey's with me at this conference. And he, of course, Joey was always helpful because he was laughing. Because he can tell on this conversation what's going on. And I'm standing there, and I look over, what am I going to do? He goes, I don't know, you're in trouble. <laughs> I, I said, sir, I, I've got to find somebody to come over there and pay this. Just help me out. I'm going to call my wife. He said, well, I'll be looking for you or her. So I called Beth, of course. She was extremely happy. <laughs> she graciously handled this for me. But the more amazing thing was is that the person gave a lot of grace and time for Beth to get there when they didn't have to. Now, for a lot of years, I kind of looked at situations like that and thought to myself, oh, that was nice of them. And in a way, that's true, it was. It was nice of my wife not to kill me because I'd made her life a struggle on a Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And she had an hour to get to Fayetteville or whatever. But even this person was accommodating to the situation. Who moved first? God did. He moved in the mind of that individual. Maybe God had given that court person a good day. And they weren't quite as tough as they might have been. Because they could have said, you've had weeks to pay this. What are you doing, jerk? Who do you think you are? Do you just get to run around in your little car and travel wherever you want to and go to Pennsylvania for a conference and just forget to pay your ticket? They could have done that. But they didn't. Who moved first? God did. All of the happening in Daniel's life and this particular instance, we have to recognize what the text is saying to us. God moves first, even in the hearts and minds of individuals. God is always the first mover. And of course, he himself has never moved. He's unchanging. It's shocking in another way, though, as we do not often recognize how quietly God's sovereign grace works. Do we always walk away from a situation, whatever it may be, interacting with another individual and maybe in some difficult situation and walk away and recognize? God was gracious in that. I didn't have to have the conversation I thought I was going to have to have. That didn't end up like I thought it was going to end up. God was gracious in that. God moved first. I like Dale Ralph Davis calling this God's quiet sovereignty. Quiet sovereignty. It's not less of a sovereignty. It's just not as loud as you would think. But it's there. It's present. It's real. It's active. Number five. 
Here's the other side of the coin. Responsible action must be both considered and considerate. We see one side of the coin is the sovereignty of God, how God moves first in all these things, and yet in Daniel's life, he's actually acting. He is a real free agent. He himself, having been changed by the grace of God, is still doing what he wants to do. And here, responsible action must be both considered and considerate. We don't see Daniel just going to and fro and making these edicts that everybody in Babylon has to obey him immediately because he knows God's will. He didn't march into the king and say to the king, I've had it, it's enough, I've done this, I've done that, it's over, and now I'm not going to eat your food. I will not sit down with you. I will not be your friend. I don't even like you. And you know what? You're going to hell. That's interesting, isn't it? We see a measured young man having a staunch conviction and principle, considering his next move thoughtfully. And then when he makes his stand... He does it in a considerate way. He doesn't go around saying, none of these people in exile should eat any of this food. He's speaking on behalf of he and his friends, and he knows his friends are of the same mind. He puts he and his friends in jeopardy, not everybody else. Spurgeon said, for Daniel to have been loved, he must have been lovable. He goes on and says, there are many ways of doing the same thing. And some people always select the very ugliest way of doing everything. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm not coming to you guys, preaching to you guys if it's as if I understand and, and handle all of this properly, there are times I just want to beat the door in and get her done. Get out of the way. We're going to get this done. I don't know how to do it right around here. But that's not really always the godly way to do it. There are times you have to take stands and you have to let people know that you will not move, but you don't have to do it in the most outlandish way possible. Daniel was not ushered in before the king to make a big speech. He didn't make big demands on the king of Babylon. In a way, he asked, may we do this privately so you, the secondary man who's allowing me to do it, will see God will sustain us and we will look no different than these others and your superior will not recognize anything different and your king will not know. But you will see that God did this. E.J. Young says he never yields to principle but he does not permit principle to serve as a cloak 
for rudeness, Daniel exhibits himself as a true gentleman. Another writer says his proposal was carefully thought out. He put it to mind or laid it to heart. This was not quixotic. Daniel was not in chaos. Daniel was not on a, a war path. Sometimes as believers, we got the wrong mentality as though somehow we have to get on the war path about everything and just go, <laughs> go nuclear on everybody. And then you'll know how sovereign God is. I think God's going to go nuclear enough. Or sometimes we need to be steady and thoughtful and consistent. There's a lot of Christianity out there today, or so-called Christianity, that has very little consistency to it at all. It's all over the map. Emotionally, thoughtfully, uh, thoughtlessly, all over the map. His proposal was handled with proper protocol. <laughs> One writer said he didn't organize a hunger strike for everybody. His proposal suggested a reasonable course of action. Daniel was even willing for his proposal to be tested. Let's try it out for these 10 days. Let's see what happens. If God... This is not the direction that God wants to go. I found favor thus far when we may not find favor. But here's 10 days. Let's see what happens. His proposal was not blind to collateral damage. He didn't command everyone to eat the same thing he did. kind of the struggle in some of our churches today a lot of evangelicalism gets off on fads even in dieting uh, I remember some years ago uh, had some Christian friends who had gotten involved in some kind of Christian diet uh, group and they met once a week and read Bible verses about what to eat and what not to eat supposedly and it became this whole world and mentality that they lived in, and that was the whole of their sanctification. Daniel here is not prescribing vegetarianism for every believer. He was making a stand to say, I desire to walk with the God who is covenantly faithful to me and no one else. That's what he was saying. It wasn't about the food in and of itself. It wasn't about whether it was meat or vegetables or only vegetables or only meat. It was about making his stand on the covenant faithfulness of God. And that's who he would stand by. Number six. It is unwise to assume that miraculous intervention is always necessary. It is unwise to assume that miraculous intervention is always necessary. 
As one pastor noted, there was no miracle here. This is the work of God in providence. Think about it. Everything you're seeing unfold here is God working in providence, dealing with the hearts of these men. This is what God does throughout all of providence. He's always dealing with the minds and hearts of men and women and people. Sometimes I think even those who are in the Reformed faith and think about God's sovereignty maybe more than others, we forget God is at work every second, everywhere, in and around every person and every place in all of time, space, and history. There's absolutely no time that God is not at work. There are miracles that happen. But miracles are those things where God intervenes beyond and outside of his order. And he does something that is in and of itself unexplainable. Science cannot explain Jesus turning the water into wine. That's why it's a miracle. And Bible-believing Christians note it's a miracle and it happened. It's real. Jesus turned the water into wine. God taking a dead soul and making it alive, that's a miracle. But a lot of what we see here is this is not a miracle. This is the, the working of God in all of providence. This ought to be an encouragement to us to recognize that here we are living in our own Babylon. And God is still working every single second of every single day in every single person's life, whether we're in the global economy or the American economy. It doesn't matter whether it's global politics or American politics, whether it's this education system or that education system. God is the one at work every single day. That means we need to trust in Him. Put our trust in Him asking that we would have the grace to stand on his principles and not ours. Asking to do God's work his way and not ours. There's a way to stand up against abortion. But I shudder to say that I could command people that you need to go out and kill abortion doctors. But there are ways to stand up against these things thoughtfully and with conviction. I would dare say that we need to recognize that the Whatever this reversal of Roe v. Wade has done in our culture, we need to recognize what has brought that about over time is the very work of God and God hearing the prayers of his people. Millions upon millions of believers have been praying for the reversal of that for decades. Who brought that about? God did it first and foremost. 
God did it. Sometimes it's not a miracle. We need to recognize it's the sovereign God working as he does according to his will and his plan for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Number seven. Godliness seems insignificant, but it outlasts world empires. Godliness seems insignificant, but it outlasts world empires. Verse 21 is a precursor to the rest of Daniel's life and what will be shown in the rest of this text. But it's a short sentence, and yet it says a lot. Verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. This means that Daniel lived under four kings and outlived three of them. As one pastor noted, All human government has a limited shelf life. Babylon's was going to be about 70 years. (laughs) Boy, they thought they had it together. Just go read about what the Persians did to them. It was a complete annihilation. I won't read it to you or quote it, but go read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. It's one of my favorite poems. Go read it today. It'll tell you a lot about human government having a limited shelf life. D.R. Davis says, So Babylon, the hairy-chested, macho brood of the world, has dropped like a thud into the mausoleum of history while fragile Daniel is still on his feet. Spurgeon says, these two words, Daniel continued, from verse 21, these two words, Daniel continued, summarize the whole of Daniel's history. Kings, dictators, Presidents and warlords will come and go, but God and his people will remain. And God's people will remain because God will never be changed. He is. He is. So we praise the I Am, and we praise him through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we bow before you, praising you for who you are in all of your sovereignty and glory. And yet we recognize that we do not always give you praise for your sovereignty in all things. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed to recognize your sovereignty in all matters and to bow before you. Forgive us where we have only seen the sovereignty of another person or group or even our own sovereignty. Give us hearts and minds to bow before you, the only, the only king and potentate of all time. For you reign before time as you created it. Give us hearts and minds to seek to do your will that we would show the truth of your word in our lives to those around us. Give us favor and compassion with those who we deal with as we make principal stands in this world. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.